everyone and welcome to episode four of the Boots and Trunks podcast here on the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast network. Speaking of the network, it's been a really busy month here on the podcast feed. Before I go any further, I want to pay tribute to the quality of podcast being produced right now at We Don't Know Wrestling. My friends Quinton and Brock have recently finished their rundown of their top 101 matches of the decade for the Psychology is Dead podcast. I cannot stress how essential a listen this epic three-parter is, clocking in at over 16 hours of content. Some shows give you quantity, some give you quality. I don't know if I've ever listened to a podcast that gives you both in equal measure to the extent that these ones do. For me, it's the definitive record of the best matches of the past decade. I've seen firsthand the amount of work behind the scenes that went into it. It's a little piece of pro wrestling podcasting history that can be revisited again and again at any time in the future. Personally, I prefer to treat it like the good bottle of expensive whiskey that you keep on the shelf to be savoured a little at a time as a special treat. Also on the feed is a new podcast series called Beru Barra Tag Boom. Alex, the host, looks at the early history of Joshi wrestling and girl culture in the 1980s. Again, I've seen the amazing level of work and research that goes into this project. This is unique, original content, and a topic no one has covered in such detail before, and is so deserving of your time. I am proud and humbled to share a network with podcasts of this quality and others. It inspires me and makes me want to do better. And so, on to the topic of today's show, The Humble Headlock. The original plan was to make this a one-off show. My initial fear was that I wouldn't get enough out of the topic to even produce a full show. But then, I got to work, and this thing took on a bit of a life of its own. It will probably need two, or even three episodes to do the topic full justice. I'm deeply uncomfortable with blowing my own trumpet, but I'm really happy with this show. In my mind, it is the episode that so far best embodies the vision I had for Boots and Trunks at the start of the year. You can follow the podcast as always on Twitter at Boots Trunks and the podcast feed at WDKWPN. Thank you as always for taking the time to listen and leaving your feedback. It really does mean the world. And now, on with the show as the Boots and Trunks podcast presents part one of the Humble Headlock. Chapter one Curiosity and Honesty. The headlock, or side headlock, is one of the simplest and most frequently used holds in professional wrestling. It is most commonly applied when a wrestler who is facing away from their opponent wraps his arm around their neck. It is also referred to as a reverse chancery when the wrestler applying the hold clasps both hands together in order to increase the pressure applied and make it more difficult to escape. Although mostly used as a rest hold, it can be used to execute a bulldog 
or as a means to transition from a standing position down to the mat by means of a side headlock takeover. Let's be honest, as a shoot wrestling hold, the headlock isn't really a valid technique for championship wrestling or grappling of any kind. You're giving up your back while standing. Even after taking the other wrestler to the ground, they are still on your back. Once you work free, you're left in an extremely poor defensive position. However, in a worked wrestling environment, the headlock can be used within the story of a wrestling match to fulfill a number of storytelling functions. For example, it can be used to wear down an opponent by sapping their energy through slow, gradual attrition. If a wrestler wants to wrestle a match defensively, it is the perfect spoiler move. It's a great way for a mat-based wrestler to ground a high-flying opponent or frustrate the momentum of a more aggressive or dynamic opponent. As a rest hold, it can be used for one or both wrestlers to gain a quick breather in either a fast-paced or longer match. Similarly, it's an ideal move to use in a TV setting when a quick down period is needed to accommodate an ad break. The humble headlock has perhaps never been more feared than it was back in the 1920s when the legendary Ed Strangler Lewis would use it as a finish to his matches. Wrestling in those days often blurred the line between being a work and a shoot. In the lead up to his world title defence against Earl Craddock in 1921, Lewis built up the effectiveness of the hold by using it to supposedly cause several opponents match-ending injuries. Lewis's manager even started a rumour that the move would soon be banned in the state of New York, to make it seem even more deadly. Lewis had a wooden dummy head, which had two large industrial springs in between the two wooden pieces. It was said that Lewis would squeeze the dummy head on a daily basis in order to develop his powerful headlock. In the match against Craddock, he used the headlock several times, eventually winning by slamming him down to the mat so violently in the hold that he was rendered unconscious. Looking back at the limited, grainy footage of Lewis that is available, this became a go-to tactic that he would use throughout his career. Lewis was legitimately one of the greatest shoot wrestlers in American history and could beat his opponents at will if he saw fit. There's a popular story, told many times in the Wrestling Observer, of how he would ask his opponents if they wanted to wrestle the easy way or the hard way. When he used the headlock, it was a clear signal to those in the know that the match was a cooperative work and not an actual contest. While the days of wrestlers winning match after match with the humble headlock are probably gone forever, it can, if used in an intelligent and creative manner, still be an excellent storytelling device. In today's episode, we will examine how trends and styles in pro wrestling have continually evolved over time. In the 1970s and early 80s, much importance was still being placed on simpler holds like the headlock. The style was generally more patient and mat-based. Longer matches played out like a strategic game of chess, with a careful exchange of holds being used to keep the crowd engaged. As time went on, a number of factors contributed to a decline in the prevalence and importance of the mat-based style. The entertainment side of wrestling would become emphasised more prominently in the mid to late 80s and 90s, at the expense of the idea of straightforward athletic competition. And, in more recent times, there's been an explosion in the more modern, work-rate style, with wrestlers tending to gravitate towards more spectacular, all-action matches. Over time, we have seen a dilution of the importance of the basic nuts and bolts of wrestling. It's something that saddens me a great deal. Another feature of modern wrestling is an increase in critical acclaim for needlessly bloated, over-long matches. Long matches are not a new phenomenon, of course. As we alluded to earlier, long patient matches were commonplace back in the 70s and 80s. However, what has changed is the approach taken to working these matches. Many modern wrestlers lack the acumen and skill sets to fill these matches with compelling and interesting work. The opening portions of matches are now treated almost like a formality, a period of the match that wrestlers tend to gloss over in their haste to get to the so-called more exciting closing stretch. The early stages of a match should be seen as an opportunity to provide something meaningful for the viewer to sink their teeth into. It's a chance to begin to weave narratives and sow seeds for later. Instead, many wrestlers, 
and indeed viewers, have become conditioned to see it almost as an inconvenience. They will half-heartedly dabble in concepts like limb work and setting, only to abandon them in their determination to shoehorn in their signature spots, even if it contradicts the story they're telling. A depressing feature of modern society as a whole is our insistence on bloated excess. Bigger and longer apparently means better in all walks of life. And yet, paradoxically, our attention spans have never been shorter. Why read a book when we can go online for the quick dopamine hit of social media? The biggest winners at the box office are three-hour blockbuster movies that demand little of the viewer in terms of critical thought. Why take the time to tell an interesting, nuanced story when most will be happy with an undemanding fireworks display? We insist upon being spoon-fed excessive amounts of content, but also need it dumbed down as much as possible. And as it is in life, so it is in pro wrestling. Many modern wrestlers possess physical gifts that the wrestlers of old can only dream of. They're in incredible physical shape. They now possess the conditioning to wrestle for extended periods without even breaking a sweat. And maybe that explains, at least partly, why they're so careless when it comes to filling their time from bell to bell. They don't need downtime anymore to give themselves a breather. And they've forgotten that sometimes the match needs some downtime. Sometimes the viewer needs some downtime. And yes, if you're now thinking in particular about NXT main events of the last few years, that's okay. So am I. CrossFit training and Shawn Michaels have a hell of a lot to answer for. After a while, the loud noises and flashing lights of blockbuster movies tend to lose their allure and blend into one. If everything looks and feels the same, then how can anything ever be memorable? I firmly believe that it is possible to wrestle a restrained, patient style while also doing compelling, unique and interesting things that reward the viewer for their time. It frustrates me no end that wrestlers have never had it easier in terms of being able to access older footage. There are so many forgotten holes and techniques out there waiting to be learned that could easily make their wrestling more interesting and unique. Chris Hero is one of the all-time great wrestling brains. A recurrent talking point on his new podcast, Can Chris Hero Save Wrestling?, is that wrestlers should have more professional pride and hold themselves to a higher standard in their wrestling. A huge part of this, in my opinion, is putting more emphasis on logical, wrestling-based storytelling, where everything that happens has meaning and consequence. Speaking of podcasts, another that I regularly go out of my way to catch is called Private Investigations by the brilliant Irish comedian and storyteller Tommy Tiernan. It's a beautiful, gentle, thoughtful weekly show that always leaves you with something to ponder. He recently spoke about the art of conversation. His theory was that there are two things necessary to hold a truly meaningful conversation. Honesty and curiosity. Remember those two words. Honesty and curiosity. It got me thinking about the notion that a good wrestling match is very much like watching an interesting conversation between two people. And similar to a good conversation, honesty and curiosity are also essential to wrestling. Maybe, for example, out of pure curiosity, one of the wrestlers will pose a question, such as, if I put you in this hold, can you figure out an escape? And they'll go back and forth from hold to hold and from escape to counter, like a witting exchange between two eloquent raconteurs. Or one of them will work over the limb, and the understanding that the other will be honest enough to sell that work and carry their wrestling conversation on in a way that gives real meaning and consequence to their earlier exchanges. Honesty and curiosity. The more curious the questions that are posed in the ring, the more compelling the conversation will be. And the more honest the response that is given, the better the match will be. The beauty of a good conversation is that there's a natural flow to it. Both people are fully engaged and at ease with one another. They move from topic to topic in a way that feels spontaneous and organic. Similarly, there's a natural flow to a good wrestling match. 
Teams that were raised earlier in the match, like an injured limb or a move that didn't quite come off, can be revisited again and again until a satisfactory conclusion is reached. A good match never feels choreographed or rehearsed. When wrestling is good, the chemistry feels and looks effortless, like a good chat between old friends. And if Tiernan is correct, that honesty is the bedrock of good conversation, then surely there's nothing more honest than the way two wrestlers who respect each other would hit each other that little bit harder. A bad conversation, on the other hand, is awkward and stilted. There's no flow to it. We've all at some point encountered someone we really have no interest in talking to. The over-familiar taxi driver, the nosy neighbour, or the work colleague approaching you that little bit too early of a Monday morning. And in those situations, we don't answer with honesty. We fail to reply with curiosity. We say whatever we can to appease the other without telling them how we really feel. That conversation has failed before it ever started because the essential honesty that Tiernan talks about simply isn't there. And wrestling is no different. If good wrestling is like an interesting conversation, then maybe bad wrestling comes from those who simply can't communicate themselves well between the ropes. Because communication is a two-way thing. Sometimes, when two people talk to one another, it feels like two separate conversations going on at the same time. Neither is really listening or engaging. They might as well be talking to themselves. A lot of modern wrestling feels very much like that. Two people talking over one another and neither person actually listening. Both determined to show off their best stuff without ever considering how it might need to be adjusted or modified to suit their opponent or their own role in the match. It's easy to talk at length without actually engaging and listening. It's harder to meet someone halfway and produce something meaningful as is necessary in the cooperative act of in-ring storytelling. When Chris Hero talks about professional pride, I believe he is also talking about curiosity and honesty in much the same way that Tommy Tiernan does. To think deeply with curiosity about your craft, to be attentive to the small details, to study ways to make it more interesting is to approach the conversation of a wrestling match with the intellectual and moral honesty it deserves. And so, that rather rambling tangent brings us back to the subject of our show today, the humble headlock. If wrestling is a conversation, then holes like the headlock are its building blocks, its basic vocabulary. In a world where everyone seems to speak in absolutes and hyperbole, sometimes the simplest words hold the greatest meaning. Today, we will examine some examples of how the headlock, that most rudimentary of holds, can be used as a key storytelling tool to enhance the quality of a wrestling match. But first, let's take a quick detour to France to meet a man who himself approached his craft with utmost honesty and made a stellar career out of simply doing the basics well. Chapter 2 the water carrier. At its heart, today's episode of the Boots and Trunks podcast is about the simple things and how doing them well can ultimately lead to greatness. The simple things in all walks of life are frequently overlooked and ignored. They're often dismissed as boring or mundane. The modern world seems to constantly demand the dazzling bright lights of needless complexity. No athlete better epitomises the ideal of consistently doing the simple things well than an unassuming Frenchman who would go on to become synonymous with his country's footballing success for over 25 years. Didier Deschamps was born in 1968 in the city of Bayonne, in the northern part of the Basque region of France. The Basques are a fiercely proud and fiercely independent people. There is a joke that goes how do you fit 20 Basques into a Mini? Tell them they can't do it. This innate sense of defiance and determination would serve Deschamps well throughout an illustrious life in football. He's one of only three men in history to have won the World Cup both as a player and as a manager. Deschamps received his footballing education in the prolific academy at Nantes. He started his career 
not as the defensive midfielder for which he would become famous, but as a two-footed playmaker. From a very young age, it was his leadership qualities that stood out. He captained the under-16 team when he was just 11. He became Nantes club captain at age 19 and became the youngest ever Champions League winning captain at Marseille when he was just 24. His former France teammate, Christophe Dugarry, describes how Deschamps made his name for his tactical awareness and intelligence, rather than more traditional skills such as passing or dribbling. Intelligence is what characterises great players, those who win titles, says Dugarry. Didier, he goes on, was limited technically, but succeeded in having an exceptional career, thanks to his incredible ability to adapt. His great quality was his analysis and self-analysis. He was aware of his qualities, but never ever tried to overcomplicate things. He focused on doing the things he did well, very well. He never put his team in danger. It is the mark of his greatness that wherever he played, Deschamps would go on to achieve club legend status. It was his diving header on the last day of the season that clinched Marseille's fourth league title in a row in 1992. The following year, as mentioned earlier, the young man would make history, captaining the only French side ever to win the Champions League, as Marseille beat AC Milan 1-0. When the time came to depart Marseille, Italy seemed the most logical destination. The Italian game, with its rigid tactics and emphasis on solid defending, seemed the perfect destination for the tidy, diligent and hard-working midfielder. In 1994, Deschamps signed for Juventus, the old lady of Turin, a move that proved to be a match made in heaven. Between 1994 and 1998, with Deschamps directing traffic from deep in midfield, they won the European Cup, the European Super Cup, the Intercontinental Cup and three league titles. Deschamps finished out his career with stints at Chelsea and Valencia. However, while his club career was littered with trophies and medals, it was his international career for which he would perhaps be best remembered. Deschamps played for France 103 times, at the time a record. The pinnacle of his career was undoubtedly the World Cup in 1998, when, on home soil, he captained France to their first ever World Cup win. Not content with being world champions, that team would go on to win the European Championships two years later. What stands out about the story of Deschamps is that his is a career of firsts, of unprecedented achievement. Time and time again, he did things that no player had ever done before. Yet somehow, he managed to do it while playing an often underappreciated, understated role. Deschamps' function on the pitch was simple. He was a slight, diminutive number six or defensive midfielder. He spent most of the game sitting in front of his team's defence, facing the play. His primary role was to win the ball from opposition and help protect the defence when the opposition was attacking. His secondary role was to recycle the ball and distribute it to his teammates. He excelled at impeding the opposition's attacking movements, using his intelligence and reading of the game to snuff out problems before they had even happened. He was a worker bee, a tackler, a grafter. His passing was simple but effective. He was a cog in the wheel of the overall machine that is a football team. His work was essential to the greater good but rarely made the headlines. M. Jacquet, his mentor and the coach of the 1998 French team, used to call Deschamps, who was 5 feet 8 inches tall, trois pommes, after the quaint French expression for someone short. In other words, He's as tall as three apples. But, Jacquet used to warn, you'll never take a bite out of him. Famously, his playing style led Eric Cantona, his France teammate in the early 90s, to derisively refer to him as a mere water carrier. Cantona's implication was that Deschamps was no better than the domestiques in a cycling team, who existed merely to do the grunt work so that the more talented team leader could claim all the glory. It says much about Deschamps and his admirable attitude towards the game that he took Cantona's words not as the insult they were intended, but as a compliment. Indeed, one of Deschamps' endearing qualities is that he makes no effort to distance himself from his working-class roots or his working-class playing style. Even towards the end of his career, 
when he was being handsomely paid by Chelsea, he insisted on driving an old Vauxhall Vetra to training to the amusement of his teammates. Look, I was a water carrier. I don't reject my image, he once said. I was never going to be as talented as Zinedine Zidane. Zidane at the time was the French number 10, their playmaker and creator-in-chief and one of the most gifted players in the history of the game. I didn't have the pretension to think that I could change a game by myself, Deschamps continued. Players like me, we did something of a thankless job. You don't show a hard tackle or interception in slow motion on the big screen. But if you add it all up, I was always the one that the coaches wrote down automatically on the lineup card. Deschamps spent a career making other, more illustrious players look better, simply through his mere presence on the pitch. He perfected the art of doing the basics well and consistently, to the extent that his greatness was only fully appreciated after he had hung up his boots. In the next chapter, we will explore how those same humble, unheralded values and principles can be applied to the world of pro wrestling. Chapter 3 Hacksaw No podcast about the humble headlock would be credible without a chapter on the great Butch Reed. My first exposure to Butch was through the DVD VR message boards 1980s project back in the early 2000s. For those unaware or too young to remember, the DeathValleyDriver.com message board was a community of hardcore wrestling fans who took it upon themselves to gather and review footage from the 1980s that had previously been widely unavailable. Tony Khan and Chris Harrington of AEW fame are notable former posters. This was before the days of the WWE Network and other streaming services, and the relevant footage had never been gathered into one easy-to-access place. The project involved compiling footage territory by territory, producing DVD sets of around 150 matches per territory, and the distribution of those sets to willing participants who would then watch, review, discuss and rank the matches, producing a consensus list of the best matches from each region. The sets were lovingly compiled with the sole aim of trying to expose as many people as possible to the greatness of 80s wrestling. The few sets that I own are amongst my most treasured wrestling possessions. It was the kind of community effort that has sadly been lost to the demise of the message board as a means of wrestling discourse. While I did not participate directly in the projects, I spent many happy hours sitting under the learning tree, immersed in reading the various match discussions on the message board. But back to Butch Reed. Reed is the perfect case of how one's taste in wrestling can change and mature over time. When I first watched the 80s footage from Mid-South Wrestling around 15 years ago, it's safe to say that he was not necessarily one of the wrestlers who stood out to me. I was mainly drawn to the more violent brawls, which were a staple of US wrestling in the 80s. Reed was an agile, powerful heavyweight with a tremendous physique. Fans of WCW would probably best remember him for his late career run as one half of the tag team Doom. His peak run in terms of in-ring performance, however, probably came between 1982 and 1985 as a babyface in Florida and as both a face and heel in the glory days of Mid-South Wrestling. He was given the nickname Hacksaw by Dory Funk Jr. during his time in St. Louis, after the famous American football player Hacksaw Jack Reynolds. His matches with Ric Flair are the stuff of legend. Dave Meltzer calls one such match that he saw in person in 1982 the best match he had ever seen up until that point in time. Butch sadly passed away in February of this year at the age of 66, having suffered a number of heart attacks after contracting COVID-19. It was his untimely passing that led me to revisit his work, and one particular match that I rewatched was the inspiration for this very podcast. The match in question was the meeting between Reed and Dick Murdoch on the 22nd of September, 1985, for Murdoch's North American title. Let's get it out of the way from the start. Dick Murdoch was a racist fucker. Several people within the wrestling industry have stated that he was a card-carrying member of the Klu Klux Klan. There's even a story that has been told on more than one occasion of him taking an oblivious Dusty Rhodes to a Klan meeting. On another occasion, 
Rocky Johnson and he came to blows in the ring, with Johnson believing that Murdoch was working extra stiff with him because he was black. Please do feel free to skip forward to the end of the chapter if you do not feel comfortable hearing me talk about him wrestle. I've put the relevant timestamp in the show notes. Abhorrent personal beliefs aside, there's no denying that Murdoch was a good wrestler. He might be one of the more underappreciated wrestlers of all time. Whether it was his less than chiselled physique or his propensity to lean into more light-hearted comedy at times, he was never seriously considered as a genuine candidate to be the world champion. However, that's not to say that he wasn't a great performer. His greatest strength was probably his greatest weakness and that he was a real jack-of-all-trades who could seamlessly slot anywhere he was needed on the card. He could brawl, he was scientifically excellent, he could do comedy, he could work face or heel and was a highly accomplished tag wrestler. He excelled at doing the little things well, such as his amazing facial selling. His punch was as good as anyone's in history. His arm work is some of the nastiest you'll ever see. His big time offense like his brain buster looked incredible. He had great timing and he bumped in a really unique manner. And so to the match itself. What's immediately striking looking at the footage is the stark contrast between both men's physiques. Reed is in tremendous shape. He's tall, imposing, with a barrel chest, muscular and well-proportioned. A phenomenal athlete, clearly in his prime. He looks like a superstar. Murdoch, the older of the two, looks anything but. With his large belly, sagging chest and skinny legs, he looks more suited to propping up the local bar than the wrestling ring. Appearances can be deceiving, however, and he immediately shows his technical prowess with a couple of nice arm drags. For the purposes of this podcast, our focus for the most part will be on the opening half of this 41-minute match. One of the lost arts of pro wrestling is the lockup. Here, the lockup is tight and aggressive to the extent that you can almost hear them come together. It sets the tone for the match to come. By starting so aggressively and with such intent, they're immediately telling us that this is an important match and that both of them mean business. The story of the opening to the match is the power and speed on his feet of Reed against the meanness and technique of Murdoch. It is truly a masterclass in everything we talked about in chapter one, in terms of how to make a wrestling match riveting from the first bell. The simple story they tell is of Reed repeatedly going for a side headlock, a regular tactic of his, and Murdoch destroying his arm in return. It's a simple, logical narrative that makes total sense from a strategic point of view. Murdoch has obviously scouted Reed's big matches, such as those against Ric Flair. He knows that his go-to plan is to use the headlock to wear his opponent down. By attacking the arm, he hopes to reduce the effectiveness of the hold by making it more difficult and painful to apply. There's nothing complex about this story. It's simple and logical and makes total sense both in a wrestling and real-life context. Of course, a good champion would go into a big title match with a plan. Of course he would have familiarised himself with his challenger's usual tactics and planned his title defence accordingly. It's not enough to come up with a good story, however. It also has to be executed well. And the execution here is absolutely sublime. Butch Reed's headlock is this incredible standalone move that you honestly think might be enough to win him the match in its own right. I honestly struggle to think of a better headlock in wrestling history. Like when John Cena applies his STFU, his arms are so physically massive that it looks like he's literally smothering Murdoch. At times, you struggle to even see Murdoch's face. Every little thing they do matters. The smallest movements have substance and significance. For example, when Murdoch tries to edge Reed towards the ropes to propel him off and break the hold, Butch sees it coming and plants his feet or turns his body to prevent him from doing so. It's the kind of fine detail stuff that will always score highly here on the Boots and Trunks podcast. The opening gambit in an epic game of chess. Both wrestlers are always working, even within the confines of the hold. They never sit or stand still. Reed repeatedly cranks and tightens the headlock, as if constantly trying to increase the pressure on Murdoch's neck. At times you fear he might even break his neck. 
The hold is applied so tightly you find yourself imagining that he must be struggling to breathe properly. Murdoch, for his part, repeatedly tries to manoeuvre Butch into pinning predicaments, but they're never enough to make him relinquish his vice-like grip. There is nothing more dispiriting as a viewer when wrestlers simply sit in a rest hold for a prolonged period without any sense of struggle. It is one of the more frustrating aspects of modern New Japan, for example. If you're applying a hold, work the damn hold. If you're sitting in a hold, fight to escape and sell the pain it is inflicting on you. In this match, it feels like both men are constantly battling tooth and nail for superiority. This is a wrestling match after all, a fight. Murdoch's work on the arm is equally compelling. Every time he manages to escape the headlock, he's like a shark going after blood in attacking the arm. It's a textbook display of getting the most out of the least in terms of offence. He basically does nothing but variations of hammer locks, wrist locks and arm bars between headlock escapes for over 25 minutes. Everything looks painful and vicious. He constantly changes the angles from which he applies pressure while working a hold. He manipulates the wrist, the hand, even the fingers. Not once does my attention drift. It is riveting viewing. When Murdoch has Reed in a hammerlock, Reed's only means of escape is to try and punch his way out. And yet Murdoch grimly clings for dear life to the arm, absorbing every blow, determined to stick to his plan. At one point, he applies a wrist lock while also stomping at Reed's shoulder and arm. Later in the match, he executes a hammerlock, but with Reed facing him, and then lifts him into a standing bear hug to increase the pressure on the bad arm. Ultimately, the story of the opening chapter of this match can be boiled down to the three times Reed applies the headlock. The first time he does so, he manages to keep it locked in for an incredible 4 minutes 15 seconds before Murdoch can find an escape. It is notable that the second time he tries it, it only lasts for 1 minute and 20 seconds and the third lasts a mere 20 seconds before Murdoch escapes with relative ease. It's clear that Murdoch's plan to weaken the arm that Reed uses to apply the headlock has worked a treat. It's the type of simple, logical wrestling psychology I absolutely adore. If we return to our wrestling as a conversation analogy from chapter one, this is enthralling discourse of the highest possible level. I've seen the match criticised for the fact that the arm work doesn't play into the finish. I see it differently, however. The sole purpose of the arm work in this match is to reduce the effectiveness of Reed's headlock and to force him to give up on that particular line of attack, a plan that ultimately succeeds. It then leads us nicely into the second half of the match, where things break down into a more heated fistfight and brawl. The match in fact ends in a double countout so there was no real way the injured arm could ever have factored into that particular finish. You could argue that Reed might have sold the arm a little more in the later stages of the match, and I do accept that as a somewhat valid criticism. As previously stated, the aim in discussing this match today isn't necessarily to speak to its overall greatness. It is, however, highly regarded as a high-end match in its own right. It was rated as the sixth best Mid-South match of the 80s in the DeathValleyDriver.com voting. However, the main reason I've highlighted it is that opening 20 to 25 minute period. I would call that prolonged opening stretch required viewing for any wrestler, no matter what their experience level. All the holds and techniques used are relatively simple. The kind of thing any wrestler learns early on in their training. Wrist locks, hammer locks, head locks, bear hugs. It is the best possible proof that with a little thought and planning, there's no reason why any wrestler, no matter how inexperienced, can't fill their time from bell to bell with absorbing and unique work. As for Reed and Murdoch, well, as mentioned earlier, this match ended in a no contest. A post-match brawl was used to set up a subsequent match that Reed would go on to win, thus becoming the Mid-South Wrestling North American Champion. It is unclear how open a secret Murdoch's racism was back in 1985. There are some stories of him actually being publicly on good terms with many of the black wrestlers in the locker room. Not content with being a racist, he clearly was a hypocrite and coward as well. There is some small crumb of comfort in thinking about how it must have stuck in his craw 
to have to lie down for a popular, beloved black man like Butch Reed in front of a jubilant, predominantly black audience. Chapter 4. Beauty in Simplicity Brian Danielson is the greatest professional wrestler of all time. It's a stance that will come as no surprise to anyone that knows me. Now, this is not the time to expound further upon that particular statement, however. That's best left to another episode, on another day, when we have time to do the great man full justice. What I will say is that for all the epic main events he wrestled, all the world titles he won, all the accolades thrown his way, a lesser heralded 15-minute match tucked away in the mid-card of a PWG show is as much a testament to his genius as anything he did in his career. The match in question sees Danielson take on Claudio Castagnoli on May 20, 2006 on the PWG show Enchantment Under the Sea. Castagnoli in 2006 was still making his name on the independent scene. He had moved to the US in 2004 from Europe and soon became a regular in all the major indies of the time. Bizarrely, in the same year that this match took place, he was hired by WWE and then fired by them before he ever had a chance to make his debut. He would have to wait a further five years before the birth of Cesaro and a return to the biggest stage of all. Even if he might not have agreed at the time, it is fair to say that those extra five years on the indies were the best possible thing for his development as a pro wrestler. In May 2006, he was just on the cusp of breaking out as one of the most prolific top guys on the US independent scene. Technically accomplished, an outstanding base, capable of impossible feats of strength and already a great tag worker. Really, there was nothing Claudio couldn't do. Danielson, meanwhile, in 2006, was already arguably the best on the planet. He was in the midst of his signature run as ROH champion. Despite his relatively young years, he already carried himself with the confidence and authority of a veteran. They say that greatness is often built when no one is watching. Now, it's a little unfair of me to imply that no one was watching this match. But pre-Reseda 2006 PWG was not yet the hot ticket it would subsequently become. There are probably a couple of hundred people in the venue at most. The match itself is third from the top of a card that also features two world tag team title matches and a world title match. Nobody was asking these two to steal the show on this particular night. Indeed, maybe that's exactly what compelled them to go out and do exactly what they did. Like Reed versus Murdoch, the match opens with a good meaty lockup. Good wrestlers doing good wrestler things. We start off with some tight technical exchanges and mat wrestling. As you would expect from these two, it's all fluid, intensely contested, well-paced stuff. The match truly escalates into something special, however, when Claudio inadvertently clips Danielson in the ear with his boots, while countering a sunset flip. Danielson immediately sells the paint from his ear, and suddenly Claudio has a target. When he goes straight for a headlock, Danielson quickly retreats. It's simple, yet highly effective psychology. Clearly, the last thing Danielson wants is Claudio's bicep grinding against his injured ear, while it's only natural that Claudio would try to go after any chink in the dragon's armour. I don't think I can recall many matches ever being based entirely around an ear injury, and the prospect is hugely intriguing. Claudio again goes for the headlock, and again Danielson is quick to avoid it, all the time holding his ear. They employ the basic rule of threes, a classic wrestling principle, and so, of course, at the third attempt, Claudio finally manages to properly apply the headlock. For the next 10 minutes, incredibly, Claudio Castagnoli keeps that headlock applied. And somehow, due to the brilliance of both men, it is never anything but riveting for the entire time. Claudio's headlock is really great looking. Similar to Butch Reed in Chapter 3, his impressive physique and muscular arms help to make it look extra painful and tight. They work just about every single position and counter you could think of, all the while keeping that single headlock applied without once breaking it. They even tell little mini-stories within the struggle. 
Danielson tries the same counter off the ropes on three separate occasions, this time subverting the rule of three and failing to escape on the third attempt. There's even a sense of escalation in Dragon's attempts to escape. He begins by trying to wrestle his way out. When that fails, he tries striking his way out, raining blows down on the back and midsection. When this too is unsuccessful, he opts for atomic drops and back suplexes. It's almost as if he is conveying his growing frustration and desperation with the ever-increasing ferocity of his escape attempts. We cannot see his face, yet somehow we can tell that he's extremely pissed off to have been put in this most painful and embarrassing of predicaments. And yet, no matter what he tries, Castagnoli grimly holds on for dear life. The wrestling and storytelling is of course gripping and compelling in its own right, but the real genius of this match lies in how they work the crowd. The PWG fanbase has always been fickle and demanding, even back in 2006. At first, they seem a little confused at the turn the match is taken. There's even some We Want Wrestling chants. It is fascinating to watch the penny drop with them, as the slow realisation dawns that this headlock is lasting way longer than they would normally expect. It is to the great credit of both wrestlers that the crowd does not reject this highly unusual situation. Such is the quality of their wrestling and so compelling is the simple story that they tell that the fans actually begin to rally behind Danielson in his quest to escape the hold. The match reaches its climax at the perfect point. Just when it seems like the crowd may be tiring of the story, the wrestlers pull the trigger and Danielson finally escapes. As if unleashing all his pent-up frustration in a single flurry of action, he immediately wins the match with an O'Connor roll. The huge reaction, as the crowd erupts, is a justification of all the good work that has gone before. The juxtaposition of the suddenness of the ending with the more sedate ten minutes that preceded it is ingenious. Watching this match back again, I was reminded of an appearance by Paul Heyman on Steve Austin's podcast, where he describes an idea he had for Mark Henry, and I quote, I think a headlock can become the most exciting move in professional wrestling if it's promoted right and done right, by the right person, on the right people, sold right by the announcers and pushed right by the promotion. If Mark Henry would grab people in a headlock and the next thing you hear is, this guy has a cracked skull, and for the next 32 weeks on television, Every time Mark Henry has a headlock, they say, this guy has a cracked skull. After 32 weeks, when that guy grabs a headlock, people will be going crazy. Why? Because they know this is where somebody gets a cracked skull. If on that 33rd week, he grabs one of the top names in the promotion, then you have a situation where people go, oh my God, is he going to crack Triple H or Roman Reigns' skull? Here it comes. Either someone escapes for the first time in 33 weeks, or this guy goes down too. Either way, it becomes something of magnitude. What Heyman is talking about here, in his own inimitable way, is reconditioning how the audience thinks about pro wrestling. It is not too dissimilar to what Ed Strangler Lewis, our friend from Chapter 1, was doing back in the 1920s. He thinks that it would take eight months of repetitive booking to convince the modern viewer that the humble headlock is a devastating move. The Danielson-Claudio headlock match takes that long-term, macro-level principle of booking and brilliantly condenses it down to the microscopic level of a single 15-minute match. Danielson and Claudio made the headlock seem almost inescapable within the confines of that single match. Every time Danielson came up with an escape, it was thwarted. In the space of one short match, all the audience's preconceived notions of a headlock are shattered. It goes from being a mundane rest hold in their eyes to this unsolvable problem for which even Danielson, the wrestling genius, has no solution. And so, when he finally does figure out an escape, it creates a huge moment. Indeed, that moment ultimately becomes the difference maker in deciding who would win the match. By using simple, old-school storytelling, Danielson and Castagnoli managed to create one of the most unique and ambitious matches ever to take place on the Indies. And they didn't need to have a bloated 60-minute epic to do so. I'm not sure what compelled them to work this match in this particular way, or indeed 
whether it was pre-planned or something they called in the ring. Either way, for sheer creativity and for the sheer audacity it took to even consider it, this match holds a special place in my heart. Similar to his wonderful match against Zack Sabre Jr. in 2008, it showcases the range and versatility of the American Dragon. It is a charming match, engaging and rewarding in equal measure. The overarching theme of all four chapters of this podcast is that there is beauty in simplicity. In the right hands, there is something elegant and satisfying about the uncomplicated, like the struggle over a basic wrestling hold. In the same way that Didier Deschamps stripped back his footballing style into something straightforward but highly effective, wrestling too can be stripped back to its basic nuts and bolts to stunning effect. The conversation of a wrestling match need not be overwrought or sullied by needless distractions. It is eminently possible for two wrestlers to do a lot with very little. Good technique, good psychology, good storytelling and good honest selling will never ever go out of fashion. And neither will the humble headlock.